Welcome to The Middle of Things, a new philosophy podcast hosted by me, Rodrigo. And me, Kenny. Uh, for this first episode, uh, we read a couple of essays from a book called um, uh, Philosophy in Mind, The Place of Philosophy in the Study of Mind. It's a collection of metaphilosophy essays. And in particular, we picked two, one by Frank Jackson called Armchair Metaphysics, and then a response by Gil Herman called, oh, I forget what it's called. Is it called? I think it's just called Response to Armchair Metaphysics. Well, there you go. I mean, that's the key, right? So it's, he, he's not really saying anything other than how much he did not That's like. called Doubts uh, About Conceptual Analysis. There you go. He, he basically didn't like Jackson. That's right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what are we going to do? Let's, well, we start with, um, we're going to uh, summarize each of us uh, in our own words, maybe uh, on top of each other. Uh, both arguments, first Jackson's, uh, and then Harmon's, uh, or maybe just Jackson's, and then we can comment on it, and then we can summarize uh, Harmon's argument and then comment on that. That sounds good. Sounds good. And then uh, halfway through, uh, in the middle of the podcast, we'll talk about in the middle of things. So stay tuned for that. But first, the philosophy. Okay, so um, what is uh, armchair metaphysics? So in this paper... Jackson is trying to argue that there is a place for conceptual analysis in contemporary metaphysics. That there's a way of doing metaphysics that um, isn't intellectually irresponsible, that, and that is in keeping, in keeping with a scientific spirit um, and with naturalism, um, but which really is properly done from the armchair. And, and what is it to uh, be at the armchair? I actually have uh, some ideas about what that is. Being at the armchair is um, a little bit like not having to do experiments. Right, yeah, not right. having to do experiments. But not exactly. Not exactly. Because the mathematician is also at the armchair, and so is the theoretical physicist, and for that matter, so is the theoretical sociologist, and all the theoretical people are at right. the armchair. Right? The novelist is at the armchair, right? Yeah. Um, or at the laptop. I think of it as laptop metaphysics. Right? <laughs> laptop philosophy. <laughs> laptop philosophy. Um, but but there, I say not exactly because um, uh, unlike Descartes, you're not just uh, you know peering into the void and seeing what conclusions you can come up with um, on the basis of nothing. You're reading. You're reading papers. You're reading the conclusions and work of others. Right. Yeah. Of other philosophers and of other scientists. Exactly. So, in particular, the theoretical physicists are reading the work of experimental physicists. But what are the metaphysicians? What are, what are the metaphysicians or philosophers reading? Uh, obviously, there aren't. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, for the most part, there aren't other philosophers that are running experiments, providing the data for the theoretical philosophers. Um, it's the data is just what the scientists themselves, or just the culture in general, has concluded. Right. Yeah. I mean, the data is basically just the whole of the present state of our intellectual tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, tradition up to the moment, right? Up to the moment, yeah, up to this moment now. Right. Yeah. So, so that's cool. So then, what then, um, what then is the issue? Why would there be this preoccupation uh, with the ability to contribute from the armchair? Um, I, think, I think it comes down to naturalism, right? So... Naturalism is the view that science is inquiry enough, right? Yeah, roughly. Uh, basically, I mean, 
That's the extreme form of naturalism, yeah. Yeah, but even the even the moderate one um, is, st- is still making a sufficiency claim. That is, um, the the moderate naturalist would say, yeah, you can do you can do your a priori work, but uh, not much is going to come of it. Yeah, right. Like it's not going to be it's not going to be anything of ontological or metaphysical import. It's just going to be vacuous logic, right? right. Something like that, yeah. <clears throat> right? Um, but Jackson wants to say no. It's it's um, it's not going to be vacuous. It's uh, actually giving us all that there really is to metaphysics. So let's just continue with the argument. I, I I'm going to say um, what Jackson says is that a serious metaphysics is one that satisfies two conditions. Right? It's got to be um, complete and discriminatory. Well, that was that's about physicalism, right? Metaphysics no, no, that's all in general. Metaphys- no, no, any metaphysics? No, metaphysics is just about. Um, Doing the entropy entailment, right? No, no, no. It's, it, any metaphysics has to be discriminatory in the sense that it singles out some set, some some oh, some, yeah, theory, sure. yeah, some, some, some set of theories, right. which for physicalists would be physics and and chemistry and molecular biology by honor. <laughs> um, but but yeah, need not be. So for example, um, later he says the same thing could be the same approach to serious metaphysics could be applied to. How to semantics, right? No, no. I mean, like how one thing can be reduced to another, but it's not really a reduction. Anyway, I'll find an example later. But um, uh, for the for the most part, the paper takes as an example um, the relationship between psychology and physics. So, on the assumption that the metaphysics adopted uh, is uh, physicalism, which is the view that uh, it's all physics, folks. Basically, that's that's the view. Um, uh, psychology is not meant to be disregarded or dismissed. Instead, um, it is to be located or placed, is the language that he uses. Right, so metaphysics is the endeavor to take some collection of distinct theories and to show, to elucidate not just their logical interrelation, but the sort of minimal requirements to make sense of all of them. And in particular, um, one typical way of doing that is to pick one of those theories, like say the theory of physics or the theory of biology or something like that, and to show how some other theories like psychology or chemistry or something can be accounted for in the terms of right in the terms of uh, physics or some other more basic so here's science. Here's a sentence from Jackson. Serious metaphysics is simultaneously discriminatory and putatively complete. And the combination of these two facts means that there is bound to be a whole range of putative features of our world up for either elimination or location. I love that phrase, elimination or location, because it puts the burden on... Well, it, it draws the line at, on the one hand, eliminativism, and, and then on the other hand, everyone else. It, it, it doesn't force you to decide between reduction, supervenience, uh, emergence. It just says yeah, all those true. things are good, you know, as long as you're not eliminating. So psychology, the point of the point of a serious metaphysics of psychology, if you're a physicalist, is to locate psychology among the physics somehow. Yeah. And the somehow is left uh, open, at least at this stage. Um, you know, to be serious, you got to do it somehow at this stage. But of course, at the very next stage, it tells you how. It's got to be by entailment. Yeah. Although it's interesting that you uh, that you you point out the contrast between eliminativism and everything else, because I, I do wonder whether or not he 
if he really leaves open enough room for views like emergence or no he doesn't or more complicated views yeah i don't think he does ultimately he, he, yeah he, he doesn't but but i think what's what's innovative about it is that well it just it just sidestep that sidesteps the debate uh to yeah. focus on the more important issue which is that um the ability to have these discussions at all <laughs> well that but 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 what i wanted to say is um that it's 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 about the discriminatory aspect right because there will yes. be there, there are the emergentists who say that it's not all physics because in addition to the physics there is what emerges right and he wants to say well that may be so but there's got to be some sense in which uh, the physics is complete otherwise you're a kind of pluralist which is his foil for serious metaphysics, right? And not so serious metaphysics is one that just draws up a laundry list of all the things that there are. Yeah, but um, but I guess I I guess I didn't take emergentism emergentism to be quite the laundry list view. It's no, an attempt well, to be in the middle. Well, it, so, but that's so my point. Speak. That's my point about sidestepping it. He's not criticizing emergence. He's just saying as long as there's some sense in which you're not being a pluralist, you're yeah. being serious. Okay. And that's why it's a nice, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of wanting to take sides, but I know. My, my point is that Jackson isn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> or at least not obviously at this stage, right? Okay, so then, uh, by the way, I wanted to mention also that when he talks about a complete, the notion of complete description, that reminded me of Bertrand Russell, where he talks about, um, this is in Logical Atomism. I don't know if that's a book or an essay. It's an essay. Okay. I just found it on the web somewhere. But he, Russell writes, serious metaphor. Oh, no, wait, that's Jackson. Uh, no, okay, never mind. But he basically says that a complete description of, uh, of reality that consists of all the particular facts, or rather, a description of reality that consists of all the particular facts that are true would not yet be complete because it would have to additionally say that there are no more particular facts. Yeah, and this actually uh, foreshadows uh, how Jackson wants to define physicalism, right? Right. So this, I don't think this definition is meant to be specifically about physics, but rather about that discriminatory part of the complete metaphysics, right? If you want to say that it's all physics, folks, right, or it's all, you know, it's all water, or, or it's all whatever it is you want to. <laughs> it's all aperon. <laughs> it's it's all mind. It's all mind. <laughs> Right. So, so whatever you God want. To say. No, actually, God has a mind, so that that would be uh, okay. <laughs> exactly. No, but exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but if you want to say it's all X's or whatever, yeah. um, then 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 what? I lost my train of thought. Then you need to say that that's all. Right? Oh, that's right. So you have to have some notion of what it is to have told the whole story. Right. So he introduces the notion of duplicates of, 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 world, of the world, right? So after some discussion, he basically comes to the conclusion that um, if you have a world and you create a, um, a duplicate that is alike in all physical respects and which, for which there is no more reality than the duplicate itself and it turns out that having made that duplicate you of all the physical properties you also have a duplicate of all the properties then that is the sense in which physics completely uh defines the reality right and that, that's that's 
very close to what Russell had in mind, I think, and uh, also captures um, something of what the reductionist is trying to do, um, but most importantly, something of what the serious metaphysician, according to uh, discrimination and completeness, is trying to do. Right, yeah, so it is both a discrimination and a completeness. It's a discrimination in that it limits things to the physical and nothing over and above the physical, right? Um, and it's also uh, a completeness in that it then, in addition to that, it, it identifies everything right, with the physical. Now you had some concern when way. we talked about this before about whether that would include the laws or whether it was only uh, yes, the, yeah, the specific events or particular... I mean, I don't know. You, I was completely confused when you were describing it earlier, but you want to give it another go? Because Jackson does go into it a bit. Yeah, right, yeah. He does go into it a bit. And um, he's pretty quick about it. <laughs> um, he's got nothing the, to say, maybe. Huh? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, the idea is that... Well, oh, well, it comes up in the context where he wants to prove that this is really an adequate definition for physicalism, or an adequate accounting of what we, what we mean to be arguing for when we say we're physicalists. Um, and he does this by trying to show us that it's equivalent to physicalism. Right, and um, by proving that you know physicalism is true, if and only if this conception of the minimal physical duplicates um, works out um, to be the way things are, and the issue comes up where where we assume that physicalism is false, um, and there's a possibility that this minimal duplication thing is still true because you can imagine that um, physicalism is false which means that there's more, there's more to psychology than uh, is in physics right so there's something non-physical about the mind um, but that when you reproduce the, all the physical um, elements of the world that you in, in, in doing that duplication process um, necessitate the psychological mm -hmm. features of, that, of the world. By some kind of necessity that is neither purely logical but also not physical. Exactly, yes, that's important, right? It's somewhere in between gnomic necessity and logical necessity. Well, it would that, be gnomic, wouldn't it? Well, that would be the physical. Well, and only if it's physical law, right? But it might be uh, like uh, yeah, psychophysical law. Sure. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's that's a subtle point. Yeah, um, but yes, I think the one that he the kind of necessity he's considering is metaphysical necessity, uh -huh. um, which he brings up later um, as being something he sort of wants to dispel as like a, right. as being special. Right. Um, I, to be honest, this is all very confusing to me. I, I don't understand how. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the duplicate, the, the minimal duplicate seems as as thorough an understanding of what it comes to have a complete, uh, uh, complete description. I, I just, I just don't understand uh, the, the counterexample. These, these yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I heard what you said, and I understood what you said, but but I, I don't know what these psychophysical laws would be that wouldn't. Oh, you know what it is. The problem is that I'm being again. Humean about laws. Right, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which he brings up. Which yes. he brings up. And um, and then he says, but we don't have to be Humean about laws to get around this problem 
And then he goes on to be human about loss, as far as I can, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> Maybe we should just skip it, yeah, because uh, this paper isn't really about laws, and uh... it's not it's, right. It's not the main thrust of the paper. The main idea is just to illustrate that we can give metaphysical formulations. You know, for... you can you can do metaphysics a priori or something near enough. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Using conceptual analysis. where the near enough is on the a priori, not on the metaphysics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the next step in the argument is, he says, okay, so if you, have, if you have minimum physical duplicate worlds and complete descriptions of these worlds, descriptions in terms of the physical uh, properties um, of those worlds, then any psychological uh, truths uh, of these worlds would have to be entailed uh, by the physical truths. Um, and... Well, because entailment is basically just about what's true for different worlds. Yeah, basically the idea is um, if physicalism is true, then it entails the truths of psychology. Then physics entails the truths of psychology. Right. It seems to me like a semantic assent. You know, it's like the when you when you talk about completeness in terms mm. of physical duplicates of worlds, you're talking about entities. But when you're talking about truths, you're talking about language about those entities and so what was previously about duplication is now about entailment relationships between the truths of sentences yeah uh, maybe i'm wrong but that's how it feels and anyway the point of all this is to say that um, if you accept um, the understanding of serious metaphysics as completeness and discrimination and if you accept that that's well captured by the notion of a minimal physical, sorry, yeah, a minimal duplicate. Um, uh, I, I wanted to elide using physical because it's supposed to be more general than just about physics versus psychology. Well, it's but, just supposed to be a paradigm example. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a stand-in. Right. There are other examples which should, I should find which out. Which he brings up later, yeah. Right. But So let's just say it's about psychology being located or placed within physics. Then the idea is that if you accept that that's what we're trying to do uh, from the armchair, um, then... Uh, then if, if that is well captured by the notion of a minimal physical duplicate world being um, sufficient in capturing all truths, then what you end up with is that if, if, it's, if it's even meaningful to speak of there being a sentence, a very long sentence, that captures all the truths of any of the duplicates, then you have effectively uh, captured all the truths, um, all the non-physical truths of the duplicates as well. And so that's only possible if there's an entailment at the level of the sentences. Right, yeah. Okay, so then... I mean, and in yeah. particular, that, that this entailment just is all there is to, to doing metaphysics. Right, right, Basically, right. Basically, like, right. to, 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 to come up with, this, with an argument of this kind is all there is to do in doing metaphysics. So let's do a little example motivated by Jackson's Mary argument without introducing the Mary argument. Uh, let's, let's just say... If physicalism is true, yeah. that would mean that a, a very long sentence that lays out the truths of biophysics would mm -hmm. entail the truths about what red looks like. Yeah, what it's like to see red. Yeah. Well, isn't that what I said? 
what no. what red looks like is not yeah. the same as what it's no, like to see. It's definitely red. not the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm not hung up on on um, at least treating I don't think those. It's the same. I'm not hung up on treating those locations as units. Okay, uh, I'm willing because I really do think it's about like. Well, I know I know Lewis doesn't like that, but okay, whatever. Um, I it would have to entail both. How about that? That's true. Yes, it, sh- it surely would. It would have to entail both. Um, if it's to be complete. Yeah. Not, not to mention, uh, you know, all the truths about it and, and intentionality. Uh, and right. It, you know, a- a- anything, basically. In fact, if you're a physicalist, it would have to entail all the truths, not just the psychological truths. Right? Um, yeah, if you're a physicalist writ large. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so then the question is, what does conceptual analysis have to do with entailment? Yeah, right. So what does conceptual analysis have to do with entailment? And how it comes in because it turns out there's a critical step in most of these arguments that, if not all of them, that requires a kind of um, a priori argumentation where we analyze right the meanings of certain terms that we get from just being competent English speakers, right? Like such as red, what it's like. Yeah, right. What neuroscience. Neuroscience. But also, yeah, just many mundane terms like Light. water or tables and chairs or mm-hmm. you know, the the uh, the medium sized dry goods. Right, right. <laughs> the furniture um, of the world. But not only the medium sized ones, because we're 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 trying to bring it down to physics, right? So it's it's No, actually this is important. The the one the the Oh right, the conceptual analysis. The conceptual analysis is, is focused yeah. on the terms that we get that are not coming from the. They are not coming from the physics. Yeah, right. Because and they'll it's, take and care it's, not, it's not just that they're not coming yeah. from the physics. They, it's important that they come from simply being a competent speaker, right? Yeah, right. Um, from right. from understanding the meanings of the terms in a non-technical way, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, and so. The idea then... Uh, it can't be jargon. Right. Yeah. Um, so water is definitely not jargon. Right. H2O, maybe. Yeah, but then that comes from the physics. Exactly, yeah. Um, but my point is that, you know, water... Uh, the reason water gets discussed in this context is is because uh, the identity of water in H2O is one of the paradigmatic examples and always has been, or, I mean, has been for decades. But it's uh, it's kind of amusing that water is also... You know the first metaphysics, right? Oh yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, because uh, Thales Back says Thales. is water. And also, if I may introduce a personal note, my first word ever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> first word I ever said. <laughs> um, nice, but I don't know the context. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's probably just give me that. <laughs> so I can't, I can't fix the reference. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, um, so what what Jackson says is um, that. Conceptual analysis can be a priori even if there are a posteriori um, elements to the analysis um, because the a posteriori part is just concerned with with the discovery of these identities. So the, the, the conventional story is that we discovered that water equals H2O. We didn't arrive at that by conceptual analysis. Right, yeah. You know, it isn't as though a chemist sat around, looked at the data, and then stepped aside and said, hmm, maybe I should mean H2O by water. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, instead it was that he had been talking about water all his life. 
and many others before him. But he learned about H's and O's and and other things, you know, yeah. reactions and such, electrolysis or whatever it is that they did. And um, and, and, then, and importantly, he noticed uh, in doing experiments or in reviewing the experiments of others that this thing that you could synthesize H two O just was water. <laughs> yeah, it's what they had been. It's what they had all along. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't hydrogen peroxide. It wasn't alcohol. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, actually, they figured out that later. Um, well, no, they already knew how to make that, right? Fermentation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so probably the <laughs> earliest chemistry. <laughs> well, you got priorities. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, what's what's interesting here is that water didn't change its meaning on the on on on, on having produced this experiment. That's really important, right? That's the fundamental insight. Uh, it meant the stuff that ah, falls yes. from the sky is colorless, odorless, that we drink all the time, flows in the rivers. That's roughly what it means. Right. And what it meant. And what it keeps on meaning. Yeah, yeah. it still means. What it meant, what it means, what it keeps on meaning. And then the identification with H2O is, is consequent of its meaning, plus some um, chemistry. Yeah. Uh, um, and the chemistry is a posteriori. The chemistry is a posteriori. You're right to hone in on that it's not a ch- that there isn't a change in meaning, because that's the that's the real thrust of what he's of, of his paper is yeah. the idea that that you can do this without a change in meaning. Because for a long time, um, meaning was thought to be deeply sensitive to truth conditions. Well, it's not just that, but conceptual and analysis was thought to engineer new meaning as you went along. I, yeah. Yes. Well, that's where I was going. Oh, yeah. sorry, sorry. So, <laughs> so, so going along with that um, is the idea that when, you, when, when, when there's a change in truth conditions or a change in theory, um, you've effectively changed the meanings of your terms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but... But Jackson brings in this new machinery of, of two-dimensional modal, modal logic. Well, before we get there, um, so, <laughs> um, by the way, this is the reason for the occupational hazard in, in philosophy that insists that all arguments begin with defining each other's terms, or defining one's own terms, right? Yeah. One of my pet peeves, right? So somebody says, I'm not going to discuss justice with you until you... Well, that's a terrible example. I'm not going to discuss, um, say, a priori... Yeah. with you until you define exactly what you mean by a priori. Well, you know, the thing is, like, I, I, I was only born a few decades ago and people have been using this for some time, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I want to be consistent with what everybody's been talking about all along. Uh, so the idea that philosophy should be a kind of fancy lexicography is a huge mistake. Um, but at the same time, you know, we do define terms. We do engage in... Uh, establishing necessary and sufficient conditions. So what is it that we're doing? I mean, I think that's the deep issue in this paper. Um, if we're doing conceptual analysis anyway, but we want to be sensitive to how there isn't a meaning change uh, as we now know that, or as we now take it to be, that identities are discovered a posteriori, yeah. then what is it that we're doing when we do conceptual analysis? And I think what he argues... Okay, so what he argues here is that... Um, um, well, we just leave that to, to, to science. 
the discovery of the identities. And what remains for the metaphysician or the conceptual analyst, can you say that? Conceptual analyst? I'd, yeah. I'd rather not. It, that sounds, it, that sounds, <laughs> that, that's, that would that be, sounds too much like financial analyst or something. Well, I was actually thinking, not armchair, but what do you call it when you sit back for Freud? Uh, the, the lounge? Or, the psychoanalyst? The, 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 <laughs> or the, the couch. The couch. The couch? Yeah, yeah, that's more like uh, couch metaphysics. No, that's not good. Yeah. Um, so not the conceptual analyst. We'll say the, the philosopher of language. Uh, when he does conceptual analysis, he's, uh, he's, it would seem that he's coming up with the necessary and sufficient conditions as if de novo, you know. But while that's good sometimes because it tightens up arguments, there's a sense in which um, that's a problem. And, and Herman goes into that. So maybe we can postpone that thread for later. But the issue is that if the identities are discovered, that is provided to you by the scientists who are not restricted to a priori inquiry, because you know they're doing experimentation right. and hypothesizing and testing and all the rest, then what's left for the conceptual analyst? It's the a priori argument, which ultimately is just a logical argument that ties all of these concepts together. Yeah. Right? Which then is what he means by entailment. And the reason I think this is not something that the scientists themselves do comes to just the division of labor and the special sciences. Well, it's not just the special sciences, but even physics, which is not a special science, it's a fundamental science, is still not concerned with the theoretical conclusions and, and hypothesizing and experimentation of the psychologists. Right. right. The physicist will say that psychology is a chapter of physics, but it'll never include it in their textbook. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it's, it's both together and separate. And I think Jackson's claim here is that the unification, uh, that's too strong a word, the location or placement, as he says, the location of pla or placement of psychology or any non-physics truth into physics depends on two things, the discovery of the relevant, necessary, a posteriori identities, such as that water equals H2O, and the logical argument that uh, places truths of one uh, stated in terms of one set of properties or predicates into uh, truths of the other. Um, Is that too strong? It's yeah, it's too strong. Um, only because well, I think it's not quite right in one respect. He is trying to argue that the that the seeming necessary a posteriori truth truths of Identity statements like "water is H2O" um, that we that we think we get from science, we can get those. Uh, well, we can get not necessarily those statements a priori, but we can get um, we can get the the useful consequences of those statements uh, a priori by doing conceptual analysis. In a way, we 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 can sort of si we can take the theoretical results of physics, but not that identity statement, um, and make the same sorts of conclusions that we want to make using that identity statement, but without it and just doing conceptual analysis. So in his analysis of... Oh, no, I remember, yes. right. In so his analysis of, uh, of water and H2O uh, that yeah. comes up later, he, he uses our, you know, uh, our ordinary understanding of the term water as just being that you know, colorless, odorless, tasteless stuff that flows in rivers and streams, etc. Um, in order to kind of, uh, um, as a kind of, I don't know, so, so semantic leverage to, so that he doesn't have to appeal to this 
allegedly necessary a posteriori state. Right, no, exactly, right. So in, yeah. in other words, um, the argument, the a priori argument can, can, can stem from just uh, the, the necessary context to, the necessary context, sorry, the context that would establish the identity rather than the identity itself. Yes, that's right, yeah. So in other words, uh, to use the 20th example, um, the a, priori, the a priori argument begins with the premise we're on Earth, not on Twin Earth. Um, but it doesn't require um, for soundness that we actually happen to be here. Well, for, uh, for soundness, it, it would require it, that. I mean, it, uh, well, no, sorry, for validity, right. Oh, for validity, it doesn't yeah. require that, yeah. And that's all he's trying to do. Yeah, right. I mean, he's yeah. He's just trying to show that we can make valid arguments a priori, where it's really um, where although we take certain statements from science, none of them are like weighty identity statements right. that we might think convey a certain metaphysics that he wants to uh, well eschew. Basically, right. actually, I think that point's really important because he is he's arguing really two things in this paper. Not just that there is a place for metaphysics um, and that it's by way of conceptual analysis, but that importantly that this isn't the kind of metaphysics that people started doing after the 1970s. <laughs> oh. I didn't come to this conclusion until having read the paper a second time, basically. But I realized that what, what Jackson is trying to do is to rehabilitate a certain understanding of descriptive, of descriptive metaphysics, yeah. right? Of, of well, where conceptual analysis really came from. Well, and that's, that, that's and actually that, so that good. Strongsonian tradition, yeah. Right, because if you don't, that is, if you want to go further, then arguably it can't if be you a want, priori. Yes, because exactly. You have to start relying on intuitions you, and, and other... Well, it's, it's not that. You just have to rely on science. <laughs> oh, 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 yes, you right. Just, no, of course. You just yes. get these, nece you just get these necessities, ne necessary statements that are uh, a posteriori. Mm-hmm. In the yeah. formulation, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, there's a paragraph here that's nice. He says, Hence, understanding, say, there is water hereabouts, does not require knowing the conditions under which it is true, though it does require knowing how the conditions under which it is true depend on context, on how things are outside the head. Right. Right? And so I wrote, um, so meaning may not be in the head, right? And neither may reference or truth conditions as a result. But understanding is... So, yeah, you know, yeah, understanding exactly. is, and so all you're really working from is understanding. In fact, that's all you're trying to accomplish. You know, the physicalist is not trying to come up with the true theory. He's just trying to show how what we take to be the true theory in psychology and what we take to be the true theory in physics could even go together. Yeah, right. I mean, how in a way it's really just one theory. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the fact that... That the that the psychological theory is entailed, I mean entailed, right, <laughs> by the physical theory means that it's a part of it. So, could it be that uh, that to to turn away from uh, meaning and the and uh, the in the in the reference fixing sense, but turn yeah. away from meaning and reference and truth conditions toward understanding which I guess is now going to become a new technical term, right? Whatever it is that picks out context. Um, could it be that this is a revival of some kind of semantic internalism? 
Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I don't really want to open that necessarily. But I, I'm just throwing I, I don't, it out. I don't think that's. Um, I think it's more subtle than that. Okay. Um, I hope so. Yeah, um, because it's not saying that the that the references are internal or no, no, or, the, or that they're like I said, the thing that picks out. Um, well, I guess what I'm saying is something has got to be internal for it to be a priori. Yeah, right. What's a priori? Yeah, exactly. So what's a priori is. Well, the meaning, right? Whatever that is. But it can be and, meaning in the sense but it, that intentions right. were meanings. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it is distinct from intention right. or sense or right. individual concept or any of those terms that were used right. for many years. <laughs> Which I guess is what brings up the two-dimensional stuff. Exactly, yeah. So we're going to... Okay, so maybe this is a good moment to... to Okay, we're now like at the middle point, right? So we're in the yeah. middle of things, right? So let's talk a little bit about what this podcast is about. For instance, why did we call it uh, In the Middle of Things? Uh, yes, well, In the Middle of Things, as you know, is a literary device. And it, uh, it's basically where a story starts off <laughs> in the middle of things. It's not just literary, it's also a film, right? So like... Oh, yes, right, like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> right, which begins on episode four. You know, yeah. this is always a problem when you're talking to kids, right? Because when you say, did you watch the first one? Which is the first one? Is it New Hope? Oh, or is that's it, true. Uh, but you know, oh, man, you know, you know how amazing the philosophy of language is? That it helps us understand the situation? Because our context of introduction to the, to the usage of the term first Star Wars is different from their context of introduction oh, yeah, of course. to the term first Star Wars. Right, because by the time they had a chance to watch any of them, their prequels were already out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Mind blown. Right, right. That's so interesting. Um, but nevertheless... So you... for those of you who don't think that philosophy has any relevance to <laughs> yeah. everyday life... No, it can help you, it can help you negotiate uh, Star Wars binging. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, very practical. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, so, so uh, Star Wars starts in the middle of the story. You know, in the very first scenes, Darth Vader is already in power. He's already trying to do whatever it is that he's doing. But as we find out a decade later... Right there's there's the backstory. There's him as a kid. There's him as a young Jedi, and when he's a good guy, you know, and and uh, and Luke hadn't even been yeah. born. Right. So 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 philosophy is also uh, like this. Um, how did um, P. F. Strassen put it? So in in his introduction to uh, to philosophy, to philosophy, he says in the in the shallow in the shallow. No wait, sorry. In the, in 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 the, in, this, in the pools of philosophy. Yeah, there is no shallow there end. There is no shallow end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and what this means is that that introductions are illusions. You know, at, at best, right. it's a little less demanding. But really, um, you don't really know what's going on uh, until halfway through. So now we're at halfway. We're telling you a little bit about what we're trying to do. Um, and, and, and there's also an epistemological point here that's very deep. And we'll get to it over the next few episodes, maybe someday, maybe not. But the, the, the fundamental thing is... You cannot hope to arrive at knowledge if you aim to build from first principles where everything is certain and eventually you've built a found, you know, like a castle with a foundation. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Now, that is a peculiar view. Many philosophers feel otherwise. Traditionally, everyone felt otherwise. But as of the mid 20th century, it has become mainstream and possibly conventional wisdom 
to recognize that uh, foundationalism is a dead letter and that you have to sort of begin with what you happen to believe, uh, call that knowledge with some degree of modesty and move forward. And, yeah, and, right. The idea is there is no way to just kind of like reconstruct things from some limited number of first principles to you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, so to speak, <laughs> into certain knowledge. By the way, when entrepreneurs talk about pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, it's not clear they recognize the irony, right? The point is that you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, anyway, um, uh, so uh, in the future, uh, we would like to um, pick other topics and other readings that relate to past ones, so um, it, rather than just jumping around uh, philosophy as a whole, which we'd love to do anyway, but in the interest of continuity, which has a value in itself, yeah, uh, we'd, we'd like to we'd like to string things together. So I mean, we we, we started with meta philosophy, just because it's a great way to start. <laughs> yeah, it's like, what is philosophy it's, anyway, and, and what is your excuse for not running experiments? I mean, I'm tired of the scientism right. that pervades uh, the culture. And even, frankly, uh, analytic philosophy is very scientistic. Um, I grew up very scientistic, not sure. to be confused with scientific. Um, I was scientific as well in that I took science more seriously than I took everything else. But I was also scientistic in that I was full of contempt for everything else. Right. Um, I've since outgrown that. Um, that isn't to say that I mix my science with um, you know, theology and astrology, but rather that I have um, or a more nuanced uh, understanding of where lies the epistemic legitimacy of science and how that relates to the epistemic legitimacy of everything else. Um, so metaphilosophy is, a, is, among other questions, interested to ask exactly how does science, or rather philosophy, relate to science? What are their relative merits? How may they help each other or hinder each other? Right. And, and one particular uh, example of that question is might philosophy just be entailed by science <laughs> yeah exactly right so <laughs> in, a, in a way that's that's just what the the scientific uh, naturalist right and that's what we started with thinks. the 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 opponent of a priori metaphysics says it has to be a posteriori in other words uh supported by experience and so therefore you just just leave it to the scientists the scientists will tell you their metaphysics right okay what exists electrons because physics says so and that's yeah. all there is to it. Um, oh, but there's not just that. There's also institutions. But you don't need philosophers to tell you that. The sociologists tell you that there are institutions. And that's it. The problem, of course, is that there are a lot of scientists, that is, a lot of fields, and they mostly don't talk to each other, except when they go way out of their way to do interdisciplinary work. And even then, it's, it just complicates it. It doesn't simplify things. And so right. it, it's left to the janitorial services of philosophy to uh, unify and or otherwise uh, make sense of it all. And how does Sellers put it? Oh, yeah, I read. So Sellers puts it, uh, the, 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 the project of metaphysics is to find out how things in the broadest sense of the term hang together in the broadest sense of the term. <laughs> <laughs> I love it that uh, philosophy is reduced to things and hanging out. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> um, that, but, you know, I, I think it's just dead on. I, I love it. Okay. Yeah, me too. So, um, How does it all hang together? Yeah. So what are we going to do next? We're going to do... Um, oh, here, I have the list right here. We're going to do maybe something to do with uh, analyticity. Well, okay, so the reason we might do analyticity is because um, when we discuss Harmon, which is in the second half, 
Harmon is gonna is gonna uh, jump on Jackson by saying that you can't do conceptual analysis as you want, or rather as Jackson wants, because right. that depends on analyticity, right? Which, on a notion uh, of uh, truth and virtue of meaning, which supposedly is off, is, is is off the table. So we want to dive more into that because um, because after a half century of being loyal uh, subjects of Dear Quine. Uh, perhaps it's time to reconsider. I don't know. It, it's, yeah. it's unclear. Well, one of the papers we're considering reading is something called Analyticity Reconsidered. Oh, I, I didn't even do that on purpose. Oh, okay. my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we might also want to look into externalism. Uh, specific, well, that's another Bogosian paper. And the only reason, it's not externalism in general that we're looking to go into. It's specifically what can the externalist know no, a priori. A priori. Yeah. Right. Okay. And the third one, we might want to go into supervenience uh, because. These minimal physical duplicates are fun to think about, but maybe not as satisfying as they should be. And then there's the whole human thing. Right, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and I know this is, uh, yeah, there's a whole. It keeps coming up. Yeah, it does keep coming up. And then there's the. And in a way, it's a perennial topic because it's a debate as to how exactly to do metaphysics. <laughs> right, in it's, a way. It's actually more. I mean, both, yeah. it's, you know, both of these views, the sort of human and non human, are trying to do metaphysics. Correct, right. Um, and trying to do it in a way that is has a, has a certain autonomy may not be the right word, but a certain epistemic legitimacy, uh, in, independent of science. But it's not. Um, but they're but they're very different. Would it different be fair approaches to, to metaphysics? Would it be fair to relate the question of supervenience to Jackson's uh, introduction of entailment as the way to go from uh, the completeness of physics to entailment? or rather to conceptual analysis. The reason I ask is because if the psychological supervenes on the physical, maybe you still don't have entailment? Yeah, right, yes. Or something like that. Well, one, one issue is maybe you still don't have... Um, yeah, you wouldn't have entailment because it's not a really a sufficient um, criterion for physicalism. Right, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's on one. That view. Or that's three. And the fourth <laughs> is... Uh, We've been we've become very interested in two-dimensional semantics. Um, it sounds fancier than it is. Well, who am I kidding? It's fancy, but um, it's it sounds more it sounds more scary <laughs> it's, than it's, it is. Yeah, right. It sounds. <laughs> it's more not like scary. matrix math or anything, you know. Except it's, it is matrix math. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not math. It's it's that's it, right. It's logic. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> but logic is math. As, as we know. Oh my god. Okay, yeah. never mind. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so the, the idea of two-dimensionalism is. Um, when, when you do modal logic, uh, you consider the truth of a sentence or a proposition at other worlds, that is, uh, as the world might have been. So, you know, um, uh, Hillary might have won the election uh, if Comey had done his job appropriately, or... Yeah. yeah. So the idea... But that's, that's was, the idea was, in traditional modal logic, that you evaluate statements in a different context than the one in which you utter, utter that statement. So when we say a statement like you just said that Hillary could have won the election, we basically take the statement Hillary won the election and we evaluate it in a different context, right? A different world. Well, but and, yeah. and two-dimensional semantics was born out of an understanding that this wasn't enough, <laughs> right? Because you might want to evaluate it in the current context, that is, in the world as it is, yeah. in order to talk about the world as it might have been, yeah. uh, and things get complicated um but we'll get to that some other time um yeah so that's those, that's what's coming up in the future unless unless you know we reserve the right to change the topic completely so this is not a commitment I make that really clear <laughs> okay um 
uh, oh, another thing is, uh, so we are going to put up a website. We uh, and oh yeah, blog yeah, and the blog and all the usual paraphernalia. Um, yeah, uh, so any anything we reference will be there will be references links on the blog. Right. So so those materials. Our intent is to record and then read, uh, listen to the whole thing, and then jot down lots of links so that if this is all new to you or if it's not all old to you. Um, you can you can look things up because we don't really want to get into the habit of just doing exposition as though we were teaching. This is really mainly a conversation between the two of us and and anybody who wants to get involved, which actually brings me to the last point of right. this intermission. Is that what we want to call it? Intermission? Intermission, okay. yeah, Interlude. sure. Um, uh, and that is how to reach us. Uh, you can just send us email. Uh, we don't do the Twitter or the Facebook Um we're both very technically uh, uh, um, um, able, um, but it's actually for that very reason that we don't want to have anything to do with it. So email yeah, will do. It's too much um, of it in our lives. Yeah, exactly. My email is rodrigo at themiddleofthings.co. And, and mine is kenny at themiddleofthings.co. Um, for spelling, just check the show notes. Um, okay, so continuing on. Where were we? Well, we also might... Engage some of the questions or comments. That oh yeah, right. Anything you write, we will writing. respond to um, if it's uh, you know if it's exciting and interesting and on point. Uh, um, but we'll get to that when we get to it. We probably won't get any responses for the first one, but you never know. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Um, okay, so uh, the 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 article ends with the example argument. Um, which yeah. um, I wrote down. I wrote it in an amended form to reintroduce that first premise that was in the text into the into the laid out argument. Yes. So instead of one, two, three, I have zero, one, two, three. Yeah, that really bothered me a little uh, that oh. he left it out. And I, I wondered if it's important or not. I, I, I couldn't really decide whether it was important I, that he left it out or not. I, I leave it to you to worry about whether it's important. I, I, I don't... Actually, I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't... That I don't care. I, I think it might be, but I'm inclined to think it doesn't. So, okay. so let's just spell out the argument. I'm going to read it out loud. Um, first premise is I'm going to, let's number them zero, one, two, three. The first, sure. first premise is water is the stuff which actually falls from the sky, fills the oceans, etc. Yeah. Okay. Second premise is H2O is L distributed. Here, L distributed just means that it is where it is. You know, it's it's in the Pacific Ocean. It's not on Mount Everest. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and in particular that the physics maybe tells us. Oh yes, right. Physics, chemistry, and geology tell us where it is. Right. Okay. Um, two, H two O is the stuff which falls from the sky, fills the oceans, etc. This we know from chemistry. No, wait. This we, yeah, this we know from chemistry. Right. This yeah. was the seventeen fifty discovery. Exactly. And then three is the, the a priori conclusion. conception. No, three is the a priori metaphysical conclusion. Right. Which is a product of having undergone conceptual analysis. The entailment. The entailment. The, the a priori entailment. That entered into the story here. And yeah. the conclusion is, therefore, water is L-distributed. Right. But notice, notice what's key about the form of this conclusion. Water is not a physical term. L-distributed is. Yes. So it located or placed water. Specifically, where the L is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, Right, and that's that's it. So the question is, and it did it, and it did it a priori. It did it a priori, which really at this stage, I mean, sorry, not stage, which really uh, in, 
It's basically a logical truth, right? So it's a yeah, like a logical entailment, yeah. A logical entailment, which then opens or leaves open the question, right? Are logical truths a priori? Are logical? Well, it's, this isn't a logical truth, though. It's no, 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 no. It's just an it's just an entailment. What do you mean? What I mean is that uh, you know it's a bunch of modus ponens and substitutions and logical truth. Well, no, I'm not saying it's three a logical is a log- consequence. I'm not saying three is a logical truth. I'm sorry. If okay. you were to convert the argument into a single sentence, that would be a logical truth. So it's a logical intent, correct? Yeah. Hmm, that's a good question. Is it a logical truth? Well, it's 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 equivalent to. A I logical mean, is truth. it is it is it equivalent to a logical truth? Well, I don't want to get into philosophy of logic. My point was just that whether it's a logical truth or a logical, in other words, whether it's a single sentence that is a logical truth or an argument with multiple sentences that is a logical entailment. Either way, the yeah. point is that that's a priori. And yeah, right. I mean, in, I mean, in particular, so so our knowledge that water is L-distributed is a priori. Yeah, except that it um, kind of amazing. Well, I mean, it is a priori, but but the premises are not a priori. So it's it's only the entailment that's a priori, not not the conclusion. On its own. Well, presumably, a priori is a kind of justification, right? I guess my point is, I think that, that, that what that, we're that introducing here is, is a relative a priori. Because, oh, yeah, well, that was our idea, yeah. yeah so, because okay. what's happening here is, it's not a priori in the sense that because we don't know that H2O is it's not distributed a priori, then nothing concluded from it is a priori. Right, yeah, so, so the... Yeah, the <laughs> This raises um, some details. So the three premises we listed, only one of them is a priori. The one that we, the one that says that water is, you know, the the stuff that actually falls from the sky, fills the oceans, is odorless in colors, etc. I'm not um, even sure about that one. Well, that's what he claims. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the other two come from science, basically. The, yeah. The ones having to do with H two O. Right. Um, but what is what, what's importantly a priori is the entailment. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, like even if they were all a posteriori, even all, even if all the premises were all individually known a posteriori, yeah. the validity of the argument can be known a priori. Right. Well, my my point, and here's where I want to agree with Jackson without having to agree on that particular point, and I'm not even sure it's so central to what he believes, even if it is what he says. Um, um, I want to say that the claim water is a stuff which actually fill, falls from the sky and fills the oceans, etc., is is a priori only accepting knowledge of the language but knowledge of the language itself a posteriori so maybe that's not yeah. a priori either but I want to say I don't care because what the metaphysician is doing is not lexicography he's not writing dictionaries what the metaphysician is doing is relative to some base of knowledge um, that he wants to add to right so the base of knowledge includes what we know about um, water what we know about chemistry and geology, etc., mm-hmm. and he adds to that. It's not merely pure logic, right? Because you know, as a logical proof, this is really elementary. Um, so what he's really contributing is how to arrange all of these different concepts together so as to arrive with a location or placement. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we actually do know that um, there there isn't a. Uh a decision procedure to do this in any non-creative way. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, it does, it does require some element of uh, creativity, yeah. for lack of a better term. I mean, the, the fact is, it's so controversial, it takes decades 
to do anything. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, this one was an easy one because nobody was worried about water. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just try doing that with experience. Oh, it'll be. Yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. So that's that's the whole paper. But um, it ends with um, so so my my conclusion is that metaphysics as armchair metaphysics that is as a relatively a priori um, inquiry uh, is possible and that it's basically a kind of accounting mm-hmm. it's, it's an interdisciplinary accounting at the most general level um, with a very close attention to semantics logic um, and the and the ontology that is derivative from the semantics and logic yeah. um, by way of semantic descent um, and uh, yeah okay so I'm done with that what do you think were you persuaded? <laughs> was I persuaded? Uh, okay, so a word about format. So we've read the paper, we summarized it. Yeah. Um, we made comments here and there, but really we held back on what we think. Well, that's not true. We didn't hold back. But we didn't. Not really, entirely. But, but we didn't like go full force. Okay, so now do you agree or disagree? Do I agree or disagree? I'm going to say I agree with him, except the bit about intuitions I wasn't so crazy about. We didn't actually talk about that. And maybe yeah. that's why I left it out, because I don't like that part. And I don't think it's central to the argument. Maybe you think it matters. I don't think it does. But I want to say that, yes, of course you can do a priori um, metaphysics, and it is purely descriptive, and it is very much um, supported by a posteriori inquiry, otherwise you know, science, but it is not in some sense the work of scientists to do. Yeah. Um, there is a natural division of labor here. Um, uh, but, but there's an important question, which is, does this mean that we have to reintroduce see I was already I was already on the bandwagon of saying there's no such thing as a priori sure inquiry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the whole me, point of the podcast right me too yeah right <laughs> it's like there's no a priori inquiry by the way I think you can do a priori inquiry <laughs> <laughs> it happens to be the, the very first argument yeah. we read no but so so I, I, have, I want to have it both ways I want to say there is no a priori uh, inquiry but you can do this a priori and I think, yeah, so the I think there's, there's relative two, there's two yeah so there's two things I was going to say about that it's uh, it's a priori relative in the sense that um that starting with the meanings of the terms, which are, of course, gotten a posteriori, as we learn language, um, it's it's relatively a priori to, you know, with respect to the language you already have, and the understanding yeah. you already have, right, the semantic understanding you already have. Uh, you said um, two things? Yeah, the second thing is that it's not certain. Right. It, it's not certain precisely because when you, uh, basically when you ask well, how do you know this? You know this this about water, right? That water is the the stuff that flows in rivers and streams and stuff. Well, you are at that point going to have to talk about your experience of learning language, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so it's, it's brilliant actually because this is a priori and fallible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but that um, well, let's let's get to that it's, later uh, because I think uh, this has a lot to do with relatively a priori or. Contextually a priori no, 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 is also not... another term that uh, has been, uh, been yeah. thrown around we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> by explore. some people. Let's explore after Harmon, because I think this is going to be really deep. But the main thing here is just to lay down the the glove and say, yeah, we want to have it both ways. and, and it's not I want to have it, yeah, sure. There's, one more other, there's another way that it's not a priori. And that okay. is that logic itself may not be a priori truths. Right. So even if you eliminate the non-logical parts and then focus the entailment of the argument to the logical entailment you know logic itself 
is not a priori according to Aquinian uh, scruples. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I want to allow for that. I want to say, yes, it may not be a priori by Aquinian scruples, but but these would be the most scrupulous of of measures, right? So I want to say it's relative to the you know the um, the the standing of logic on the one hand, the standing of your knowledge of the language on the other, and on the third hand, uh, the a posteriori deliveries deliverables from science. So yeah. it's, it's so it's not really a priori, but it's a priori enough not to get out of the armchair. That's the key thing, right? You're not having yeah. different you're not having to run surveys or run experiments or ask people what they think. Well, yeah, so what's important is that, um, so there's this division of labor, right, of, of intellectual labor between the sciences, and um, the key thing about armchair metaphysics is that it locates philosophy in this intellectual space where um, in order to get things done in metaphysics, you don't have to do experiments which are unique to metaphysics. Right. Right, as like, as like a science. Right. Um, instead, it's a relating of theories, a, a logical relating of theories to each other, basically. Right. Um, because you might think that in order to do serious metaphysics, like in order to, to uh, justify the statement that water is H2O, that you have to go out and do some unique experiment, right? Or to take a more realistic example from metaphysics, if you want to say that, say... Um, uh, that mental states are, you know functional realizations of something right or that or that or that time uh yeah. time is prior to being or being is prior to time <laughs> yeah right it's like you don't have to run some experiment on time yeah <laughs> you know i mean it's like you know everything you need to know about time already with high school physics and you take it from there and then once you've got a good theory well then you learn the more advanced physics and you try it again and if it's still all coming together with some kind of logical entailment then you've done the work yeah. And I insist you don't have to leave the armchair. Although you do have to take your you do have to use your laptop. Right, yeah, you need JSTOR. You need JSTOR. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's do Harmon. So uh Harmon uh, Actually wait, I wanted to one more make one more comment about Jackson. Um in that although I, I do sort of tentatively I think agree with um a lot of the main points that he wants to make, there were some caveats that we threw in that he didn't elaborate on, right, about the nature of the a priori. Um, right. But but I think also I have some hesitation as to really the the limits of this uh, kind of metaphysics, because I don't think that it's an accident that the example that he ends with, the water example that we've been talking about, is not is not the example that he started with mm. and the, the the most the fullest sort of clearest explanation and switch explanation yes that he gives <laughs> of the of the, a kind of a priori reasoning is uh something not just that's relatively uncontroversial but which um in a way didn't really require anything of the metaphysical engineering of concepts that metaphysicians typically engage in uh, in terms of like coming up with a theory of functionalism or an identity theory or something like that which he brought up earlier and when he brought up brought up intuitions okay but okay hold on so in his defense maybe he just wanted to show a slam dunk example 
Yeah, that's possible. Because, I mean, you can't take on all of philosophy of mind at the same time that you defend the prospects for metaphysics. I mean, you just got to, like, he motivates it by saying, here's what you want to do. And then he says, well, here's an example, assuming water were metaphysically controversial. But of course it's not. But do you see this? Well, yes, but so, so, the, so the analogy would be that we need some relatively uncontroversial term um, of ordinary parlance, which but is like belief it. or desire, it. right? Yeah. Those sorts of terms. Yeah. We have it. Experience is a relatively uncontroversial everyday term. Yeah, yeah. The terms of folk psychology. Yeah, right. of course. Right. I, yeah. Um, so there are those terms. And then, but then where are these technical discoveries, right? The technical not. discoveries are. Um, I mean, I guess you. I guess one question is. Yeah. What are people doing? Why are people doing research in functionalism or in identity theory or in dualism? What are what do philosophers think they're doing? If what we should be doing is waiting for the technical results of neuroscience or neurobiology or whatever, well, I think and then are. using our ordinary conception to. No, uh, I think we are. Analysis. I think we are. It's just that we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's all. Um, and that seems ex- exceedingly uh, epistemologically irresponsible. No, I don't think so because psychology may not be complete, but it's got something done. And so you're just, you know, you're just speaking with respect to that. So, for example, in early cognitive science, we already had some ideas about the difference between short-term and long-term memory. Well, we've noticed that in computing, you can also have short-term and long-term memory. And so you just start drawing analogies, and then you think, well, I mean, maybe it's all just information processing and. I don't think that's so crazy. I mean, but aren't those a posteriori claims? I mean, those yes, are the claims but, that the science has to review right, but, and but do re- experiments for. But, but remember, he's saying you don't have to have the truth in hand of the a posteriori identity. You only have to have an understanding of the context that would make it true. No, that's not the context. That's for the ordinary language claims. Well, I think it's no. Hard. It's only for the ordinary language. Okay, well, I'm going to go. Really I'm going to say it might be for both. Okay, well, he definitely doesn't say that. Maybe I not. think it's important okay. though that he makes the distinction because he wants to say that there are really two sources that we draw from in making sure. these arguments. Okay, one which is the the a priori sort of ordinary language source and the a posteriori I, I scientific think, source. I still think you can have it both ways. It just gets more complicated. So to follow the example of functionalism, and you're right, he does mention functionalism, so he should have spelled this out. But um, well, he mm-hmm. he does kind of spell it out, but he does it in a way where he's—I mean—he argues that you can't do it without making judgments about intuitions or whatever. Oh, maybe. Oh, I see what you're right. Okay. I that see to you're, give no, the no, argument for yeah. functionalism, um, especially in the tradition of functionalism that he's talking about, which is this uh, sure. analytical or conceptual functionalism, right? right. As opposed to the like Fodor's psychofunctionalism, right. um, yeah, you have to do conceptual analysis, judgments about intuitions, well, about thought experiments. I, I guess I just that sort okay. Of thing. I I don't. So I have a big problem yeah. with philosophers who rest arguments on intuition. Yeah, me too. I use intuition arguments all the time. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> But it gets worse. It gets worse. I have no problem with my doing it. Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> and and the, the reason is because I don't think I'm doing exactly the same thing. And okay. so in my defense of Jackson, hmm. I'm going to argue that he's doing what I'm doing and not what the people who irritate me are doing. But I have no real defense. I mean, I can't really yeah, prove it, this. Yeah, it's only like one paragraph. You right. didn't go into it, which, so, which almost seems to me like a great 
oversight on this because oh never never say that because it's already <laughs> twenty pages and if you want well to, all right that's okay. that's fair yeah. okay so um, let me just say what I what I might have meant if I had written that paragraph okay okay I, by intuition I would have meant something like a hunch or an anticipation right or like you know a guess okay it, it's not. It's not a, uh, a. It's not an epistemic virtue. It's not a source of knowledge. It's not uh, anything that can be. Um, well, okay, evaluated. it's not a source of knowledge. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, but but it can be an anticipation. So, for example, I happen to have, you know, no accident. I happen to have the intuition that functionalism is the way to go in philosophy of mind. Okay. But that's not based on the findings of cognitive science, much less of psychology or even personal experience. Yeah. It's basically entirely a consequence of my experience with information processing um, and my folk understanding of mind. And they simply seem to go well enough together that I anticipate um, optimistically that yeah. it's all going to work out. So it's, it's intuition here is, I think, just, again, um, uh, Getting ahead of ourselves, but in an optimistic and yeah. not in any sense illegitimate way. I mean, uh, philosophy uh, I can wait because it's a very long-term project. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes we don't want to because it can be a guiding light to the science itself. Wow. Uh, we should be better communicators if, if it's going to do that, play that role. But, but, <laughs> but hey, for, one, to the pros. for one thing, yeah, I guess. But um, but I don't think Jackson wants to be that optimistic. I see. Uh, I think he thinks that this that making these intuitive judgments is just about thought experiments. Um, it's just just part of the business, the ordinary business of metaphysics. Yeah, um, I think, we and, and, just... and in particular, that that they are claims to knowledge. I think we should just leave that open because you're you're right that Jackson, as many others have might be wanting to say that thought experiments are a form of argumentation that, right you know exactly. or he might be doing what i what i'm describing and it's really hard to say um yeah at least based on this one paper alone yeah so whatever just leave it there um that's that's but that's a very valid point especially in particular, so much of metaphysics does turn on these thought experiments it, because lots of metaphysics does turn on these thought experiments and because you might think that these thought experiments are just the things that are susceptible to uh, well, the criticisms that Harmon is going to bring up. Yeah. Right? Like, but uh, but, I, but I, I, I just want to make sure that it's clear that you don't have to do this for the argument to have um, weight. Because you can leave it at entailment with reference fixing um, uh, uh, meaning statements on both the foundational side and the side to be side to locate it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Let's move on to Herman. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so not only do we start in the middle of things, we also leave in the middle of things. Yeah. <laughs> you can't wait till you're done. Okay. Um, so Herman just has he has doubts about uh, conceptual analysis. Um, I, I I outlined the argument. Um, shall I just uh, step through it? Um. Yeah. Okay. So he begins with. Um, um, Begins by claiming that philosophical analysis does not yield conclusions comparable to the paradigm cases of apparently a priori reasoning. So, um, you know, the paradigm cases are things such as bachelors or unmarried men, and right. uh, you know, four-legged cats have legs, and 
<laughs> Maybe that's not quite right, but something like that. No, he, actually, yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He says, you know, these these are hard to hard to argue with. But uh, what the philosophers then go on to do is very easy to argue with because that's not what they're doing. Right. <laughs> um, he says, instead, what they're doing is <clears throat> depending on a kind of induction over intuition about cases. Yeah. This, I guess you're right, is a direct attack on that particular little section. Exactly. Um, according to Harmon, when we arrive at conceptual analyses, what we're doing is, now let's just do a little example. Suppose I want to analyze life as that which um, is born and dies. Okay. But then you discover that some crazy species of grapevine is immortal. So that's no good. Or the, what is it, the immortal hydra? Yeah, there's a hydra that never dies, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I say, well, okay, so it's not things that die, it's things that, um, things that uh, reproduce. Right. Okay, but but then they're, the mules don't reproduce. Right. That's yeah, not but, good. Yeah, but they've got to be alive, right? Okay, well, Obviously. then it's, it's things that eat. Okay. Yeah. Or, yeah, or things that metabolize. Yeah. Uh, but then viruses... Yeah, they, they don't metabolize. Right. But they, but do, some re- say, but they do reproduce. Right. And, but then some say, well, they don't even live. And now you get into this rat hole where, what are you even doing? Right? Right. Yeah. Um, well, what Harmon says you're doing is doing induction on intuition about cases. But what are these intuitions? Right? It's just, basically it's BS. Right? Um, yeah. I think that's what he's saying. Um, that's, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you just shouldn't take it to be a source of truth. You shouldn't take it to be I mean, there, a priori reasoning. Right. Yeah. The point is that they're... It, that it's that it, that what's BS is to think that it's a priori reasoning. What it is is judgments about cases that are based on your experience, yeah, and independently <laughs> justified. Yeah, right. So, for example, our our belief that uh, the virus does not metabolize and the frog does. Well, that's just straight up biology. I mean, that's not right. BS, right? Yeah. Um, what's what's worrisome is to try to make a fuss over what counts as life. And 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 you know, I think you'll discover that. Biologists try not to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they say. In fact, you would, it's, typically it's, what they say is leave that to the philosophers. Right? right. Yeah. In fact, it's it's the point of departure for their intellectual inquiry. Right. They take life for granted and right. try to explicate its dynamics or whatever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so then, then he says, "Well, you know, this is really old hat. It's it's the the reason it doesn't work when you try to analyze knowledge as justified true belief or or what are the other examples he gives? Actually, they're kind of cute." Um, um, what was the other one he gives? Um, uh, well, whatever. Um, he says, is because we uh, long ago rejected um, the analytic-synthetic distinction, which is the idea that some truths are just truths based on meaning, or in, in truth in virtue of meaning alone, and others are based on both meaning and the reality of the world. Right. Um, and this, this goes back to an old argument introduced by a number of people, most famously Quine, but also Morton White and I don't know who else. Um, yeah, definitely those two guys. Um, but everybody signed up pretty quickly. Well, Besides uh, Quine, Putnam, and Winograd, I've never heard of that. Oh, I actually before. looked that up. So oh, really? Winograd, okay. Winograd is a computer science guy. He actually oh, really? has connections to the Bay Area. No way. Uh, oh, by the way, that's another thing we meant to mention in the middle. We're in San Francisco. Okay. Um, yeah, Terry Winograd is an AI guy and uh, and actually looked up um, uh, where Harmon got the idea that this was a name worth citing for the analytic synthetic distinction. 
And I found something that I'm going to read to you right now. Winograd and Flores. Flores is another guy who was in the AI world in the Bay Area. I think okay. this is in the 70s. Take exception to the emeliticity of all bachelors around married. They question what they see as the standard account of the meaning of bachelor and claim that the philosopher has been working with an oversimplistic conception of the meanings of the words in that sentence. This is revealed by competent speakers' willingness to use them in ways that, according to the philosopher, they ought not to be used. Uh, and now quoting Winograd. I was quoting somebody else just now. Um, Jillian Russell, actually. Um, really? Yeah, I only just realized that. This is from her book, <laughs> okay. Truth and Virtue of Meaning, um, A Defense of the Analytic-Synthetic Distinction. Something we've, well, we've been reading a, a, something by her just recently. But anyway, here she quotes Winograd. Um, and this is all, by the way, talking about Harmon. So Harmon is another Australian, by the way. Yeah. Oh, so so Kenny and I, Kenny and I have this theory that that Australia is where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> all metaf- all good metaphysics hails from Australia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They also they also have some good pop music. Anyway, so here's the quote from Win- <laughs> here's the quote from Winograd. In classical discussions of semantics, the word bachelor has been put forth as a word that can be clearly defined in more elementary terms adult human male who has never been married. But when someone refers to a person as a bachelor in an ordinary conversational situation, much more and less is conveyed. Bachelor is inappropriate if used in describing the Pope or a member of a monogamous homosexual couple and might well be used in describing an independent career woman. The problem is not that bachelor is complex and involves more terms than those accounted for in the classical definition. There is no coherent checklist of any length such that objects meeting all of its conditions will consistently be called bachelors, and those failing in one or more of them will not. The question, is X a bachelor, cannot be answered except by considering the potential answers to, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> and so uh, here, I mean, they came to this uh, after the philosophers uh, 10, 20 years earlier, but it's interesting to put it in a practical context because yeah, what they're totally. trying to do is code up representational... Uh, knowledge representation, expert systems, yeah, and no matter what they came up with, you know, it was broken. So yeah, you know, it's it's not just the computers that are broken; we're broken too, if we assume that meaning has to be this way. But of course, there's another way. You just or there are computers. <laughs> I don't 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 start. Don't go there. <laughs> um, the uh, the alternative is just to reject the analytic synthetic distinction. And what Harmon is right. doing is basically just reminding us that we all gave this up in the '60s. Yeah, you know, I mean, and, and like we gave it up a long time ago. So fifty years. Why are well, we thirty years? When yeah. I was writing this paper, of, of course, not everybody gave it up. There's the ordinary language people, like uh, Grayson Strassen in their famous paper, who said, "Yeah, sure." That uh, you know, maybe you can still have an ordinary notion of analyticity, and that this is enough to uh, dress up uh, what we are doing, which is yeah, it analysis. may have to be holistic or something. Right? Like maybe we understand it differently, but it's still there. Yeah, <laughs> and and. Um, and no, it turns out uh, when you ask ordinary people, and Harmon puts this, argues this, when you ask ordinary people about truth and virtue of meaning, they have no idea what you're talking about. The, the, only, <laughs> the only people who understand this distinction are people who are trained by philosophers. Uh, in fact, philosophy only really knew about it since Kant. So um, yeah, the, this whole thing had a lifespan that begins in the late 18th century, ends in 1950, and we're done. Okay, that's it. 150 yeah. years, good run, it's done. That's what Harmon is saying. Um, but there's, there's something deeper here, which is that... Um, actually, I'll get to that in a moment. So, um, 
Yes, right. Okay, no, this is the same thing. So the, the, the deeper point here is when the analytic synthetic distinction was given up, it was believed, um, or it was widely accepted, that to be analytically true was also to be true a priori and necessary. Oh yeah, that all these things tracked with each other, and then right. on the other side, that if it was uh, a posteriori, that it was synthetic and contingent. Right. So to spell that out in English, analytic meant truth and virtue of meaning. A priori meant you can know it without experience, and um, necessary. And necessary means that it's um, it must be true. It's true in all possible worlds, or it's it's. Um, yeah. It's impossible to be otherwise or something. Well, that's just a fun thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and then contingent is, it might not be true. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Um, that's the title of a great paper. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a posteriori means, by the posterior, obviously means after. It means yes. you know it after experience, um, only after experience. Um, and synthetic um, is um, that it's... It's bringing together of both meaning and, and reality. reality. Yeah, exactly. Meaning and world. Okay, so ever since then, um, there have been many, many uh, um, contributions that split these apart. So now we have yeah, in all sorts of ways. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's hard to keep track. But the biggest one, of course, is we now have necessities that you know a posteriori, and as well as uh, contingent um, necessities. Necessities. No, no, no. Contingent. Um, I mean, analytic. A priori, a priori contingent a, statements. A priori contingent statements. Yeah. Those are the, uh, I'm here now, right? Well, yes, exactly, yeah. So I'm here now, but also things like uh, that bar in France is a meter. <laughs> or whatever, oh, yes, right, right. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Or even something like uh, probably some, I don't know, maybe some statement about water, I'm trying to think. Hmm. Would be while you puzzle that. Notice yeah. that we didn't separate analytic and a priori. Um, uh, well, in fact, we didn't bring up analytic and synthetic at all, right? Both right. of those exam yeah. were synthetic, right? Right. I mean, I'm here now is synthetic, right? And uh, so is the water is H two O. Do we even care about this? Yes, we do, because conceptual analysis is about analyticity. But what we need for Jackson Well, but Jackson, is, but Jackson doesn't say no, that's, that. It, that's, that's my point. So for Jackson, we need a priority, not analyticity. He do, I mean, it's, it's a subtle thing, because though he does not bring up analyticity, he is arguing that um, the a priori entailments are, are doable, serviceable, but he because, admits of, because, fallible. Of our, because of our understanding of meaning. But he admits they're fallible. Well, that's something else, right? Yeah, Fallibility is something else. It is something else. Yeah, I mean, it's, although, although we, let's let's bring that up as well because usually fallibility went along with the synthetic, the contingent, mm, the a priori, mm -hmm. and infallibility went along with the a priori, the yeah. ne the necessary, the analytic. Right. So <laughs> um, Gillian Russell makes the point that uh, Quine actually accepted that they all go together. So when right. he rejected the distinction, yeah. he was just saying everything is contingent, everything is synthetic, everything is a posteriori. Yeah, and I think Harmon is going along with that too. Well, so, in fact, in fact, analytic philosophy was born out of a turn back to Hume, which was in large part a realignment of all of these categories. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. Okay, so the next step in Harmon's argument is: so if you give up on the distinction, then you have to give up on foundationalism. That part I like. Right, we talked about that already. Yeah, yeah. And what remains is a kind of negotiation of translations. So if somebody says something, like for example water is H2O, and then 
they say something different. Like, well, actually, I think water is X, Y, Z now. <laughs> then we have to understand, we have to find some way to interpret them. And we can do it one of two ways. We can either do it homophonically or non-homophonically. Here's how I would do it homophonically. I would say, yeah. when you say water is X, Y, Z, the way I would translate that to myself is, twin water is X, Y, Z. Because you mean twin water by water. Homophonically would be to take what you say when you say water as, as whatever I would describe as water as well. Yeah. And, and like, you know, I have to decide between the two and um, that's really the only remaining issue. But it's still all synthetic. It's still all a posteriori. It's right. still all contingent. Contingent, yeah. yeah. And I shouldn't have used that example because that's about separating them. But anyway, it works well enough. So that's the, the, the next step is... Actually, yeah. importantly, uh, Jackson really thinks that that this give that these a priori analyses give us reason to reject uh, any of this any of these mixtures of these categories. No, I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I know. That's, yeah. We'll get to that. So yeah. the, the, the next step is um, there. There remains definitions. You you might be able to get analyticity with definitions, but then. Um, there are some classic issues there yeah, that also come from Quine mostly. Yeah, the, um, the one that I liked best is where he says, these could be clarifying, in which case they're not guaranteed, or they can be stipulated, in which case they are impermanent. And the paragraph in which he spells it out, I thought it was really nice. I oh, yes, it. yeah. Um, he says, um, uh, I'll find it. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. Um, no matter what sort of definition is in question, no long-term epistemological status for the definition is guaranteed. As time goes by, we may as easily modify a definition as change our belief in something else. And whether we will speak of change in meaning is not determined by whether we changed what was called a definition. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, that's true, but, and I think this is where the, this is where a priori, um, uh, well, this is where treating language as Jackson does may have an escape, mm-hmm. because when you do uh, metaphysics, you don't have to be concerned with what's going to happen with the meanings of your terms after the argument, just what it means right now. Yeah. Well. Okay. So this is tricky because quine thinks that meaning insofar as it makes sense at all is going to be importantly tied to truth right um and the 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 key thing that jackson the key insight that jackson is trying to um, emphasize is that we can know how context determines truth conditions without having to know what proposition we're actually asserting but i think um, i think ahead of time right Yeah, so, I think so, you can do that yeah. in two ways. You can either do it if you're speaking relative to your understanding of the language. So basically you can conditionally say, either I know a priori that water is the stuff that falls from the sky, etc., blah, 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 or I just don't know English. Mm-hmm. Uh, or alternatively, you can just stipulate that. Uh, in stipulating it, you run the risk of changing the subject, but I think there are cases where it's safe to do so because... Um, because of something, I don't know. Like I just think sometimes that's okay. In fact, I, I pulled a quote from Carnap and Logical Truth. This is also in Julian Russell. 
and I think this is this is my motivation for being more sympathetic to Jackson than to Herman. Um, this is Quine. Yeah. The distinction between the legislative and the discursive refers thus to the act and not to its enduring consequence. In the case of postulation, as in the case of definition, conventionality is a passing trait, significant at the moving front of science, but useless in classifying the sentences behind the lines. It is a trait of events, not of sentences. Very poetic, as always. Um, <laughs> but but I, 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 what I take this to be is that um, <clears throat> the analytic-synthetic distinction runs aground when you intend for meaning to have the stability of a stipulation and that's fine at the moment of legislation when you introduce technical terms of art right exactly but it's but it's not of enduring value so for example if you say well water is just such an is you know is the stuff that's such and such but later it turns out that no such liquid is falling from the sky or there isn't anything falling from the sky well then your metaphysics is shot and it could never have claimed to be a priori unless you insist by stipulation that the argument still held. It just turns out you weren't talking about what everyone now wants to talk about. Yeah, which is a very odd way of talking, <laughs> and not at all. It seems productive. In, yeah, it seems like an insistence on being true or something. Yes, no, of course. Basically, <laughs> yeah, and and I grant that, but nevertheless, I think there's something there to be explored someday. I think it's beyond the scope of what we can pull off now. Yeah. But but I think the the point is that um, that the metaphysician is not concerned with creating a body of truths. He's concerned with um, just establishing certain plausibility conditions. You know, how could psychology fit into physics? Uh If psychology is moving, if if the meanings are unsure, or rather if the metaphysician is unsure of the meanings, um, that's okay. He'll just, you know, he'll do the work again when it turns out the previous analysis failed. Yeah. But it's it's not it's not trying to set up hypotheses to be tested. It's just making a case for a release from paradox. Well, I mean, well, that's just really, my yeah. speculation. Yeah. Okay, so then Harmon finishes with um, <clears throat> he concludes, and for the conclusion, I'm just going to read what he wrote because I think it's pretty tight. The fact that once paradigmatic analytic truths are false or easily imagined false. Shows, <clears throat> shows that we do not have an a priori insight into even what seem to be the clearest cases. This reinforces my main objections to armchair metaphysics of the sort defended by Jackson. The analyses that philosophers come up with do not appear to provide a priori connections of the required sort. Prospects for armchair metaphysics are therefore dim. I agree with Jackson that this makes it unlikely that there is a coherent version of physicalism. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's quite a few steps there. Yeah. Um, first of all, Jackson never even says he's against uh, physicalism. He is. We know this, or at least he used to be. He was, uh, yeah. But that's not in the paper. No, no, no. But what is in the paper is just that he thinks that the only way to do metaphysics is entry by entailment, and and Harmon is saying that he doesn't think you can do that. Yeah, but he says, he says he's also... Oh, sorry, wait. Yeah, he agrees with Jackson. But exactly. he, agrees, yeah. he agrees with Jackson, but for different reasons. No, he, he, no, he agrees with Jackson, but wants to say, and we have, and because of different reasons, that there isn't a coherent version of physicalism. He doesn't, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because the requirements for armchair metaphysics 
um, aren't met on Harmon's Well, uh, okay, but, but, it's, but again, it's different, right? And so Harmon says, we're not going to be able to do it because you can't even do the work the way Jackson wants to do it. Exactly, Jackson yeah. says you can do the work. No, 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 but, uh, but that's not the claim that Harmon is objecting to in right. this sentence. He's agreeing with Jackson. <laughs> He's agreeing, they both agree that if, if there's a coherent version of physicalism, it requires conceptual yeah. analysis. Right. What they disagree about is whether you can do conceptual analysis. They agree that uh, a necessary right. condition of doing uh, metaphysics or armchair philosophy. It sounds to me like it's going further, but it's okay. Yeah. So um, the, 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 the Harmon's point, apart from whether he agrees with Jackson or not on that particular detail, is that, yeah, you're not going to be able to do it. You, you can't do operating um, metaphysics of any yeah. kind. Um, so what would Harmon have us do? I think he would. Um, I think he probably would engage in the same kind of thing. He would do the same kind of armchair work. It's just that he would conceive of it as thoroughly a posteriori and synthetic, through and through, continuous with science. At best, a handmaiden to what the physicists are already doing. Yeah, right. Or he would consider it as like pure logic or something, and devoid of content. Right, yeah. right. Depending on his views on naturalization of math, right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. That. Yeah, but interestingly, yeah, they're both um, they're both pessimistic on physicalism, and I find myself agreeing with uh, the rejection of the analytic synthetic distinction. Also, agreeing with Jackson that you can do at least some kind of relative a priori metaphysics descriptively, and with physicalism, I agree with physicalism. Yeah. So that's weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, what it, that is the thing that's kind of amazing about Jackson and um, well, and also Chalmers, right? That this two-dimensional argument um, about yeah, having to do with a priori entailments has been used as the main uh, attack on physicalism, <laughs> on materialism. Yeah, we have to read that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty much essential. But seriously, Winograd, that's just kind of weird. They must have been friends. Who knows? Um, yeah, I don't know. Or it must have been in the air if it was both in Russell and in Harmon. No, no. Russell gets it from Harmon. Oh, she got it from Harmon. Okay. She's citing Harmon. Oh, she is. Okay. Yeah. All right, all right. Because right. um, I was going to say, that was 14 years. Yeah, so. So, um, I want to read the, one. The, the one thing is about, thinking about Harmon is, I don't feel like he fully appreciated what Jackson was talking about at the end of the paper. How's that? Um, oh, because he didn't go into the posteriori necessities? No, well, no, I don't mean that. I mean because he didn't... Although he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. But he didn't address um, two-dimensional semantics. But that's the same thing, right? I mean, no. it's like it's the one leads into the other. Well, I, the reason why I didn't want to... I, identify them is because <laughs> is because Jackson is trying to disabuse us of the necessary a posteriori by way of two dimensional semantics okay. I mean it's really there is this uh, what do you mean what do you mean disabuse I mean he still admits that there are such things which one um, Jackson Jackson yeah does he doesn't he necessary a posteriori sure of course he just doesn't think that uh what, what is it? I'm not really sure he does. Hmm. Well, let, let's not research on that. It's just yeah. He, I mean, he he, he argues that um, 
there isn't any special kind of necessity. Oh, yes, I remember that. Right. right? Um, no, but that's not the same thing as denying that there is a necessary a posteriori, but just to say that what makes that kind of necessity distinct from, say, logical necessity is our epistemic access to it. So he still admits of a different um, category. But isn't that exactly what they were saying? That's what the a posteriori label is. No, amazingly, no. I, I think that is exactly what well, was that's, meant. <laughs> well, he, he does say as much that a better way to think of it can be read off of the language that we use to talk about it. But no, actually, uh, necessary a posteriori truths are considered metaphysical necessity as opposed to logical necessity. And um, as, or as opposed to just necessity simpliciter. And Jackson says, it's just necessity. There isn't a special kind of necessity called metaphysical necessity. Um, you know, H2O equals H2O is the same kind of necessary true as water equals H2O. And there are no, and there's no other kind of necessity. There's no other kind of necessity. Yeah. And what makes it different is just how we, it's just how we know it. It's just how we come to know it. And that's yeah. a consequence of our knowledge of language, etc. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I don't know. That doesn't seem anything to, that seems like a clarification worth making, but in no way, um, well... I guess I'm not really sure what the import might be, but it's, I certainly didn't feel as though it means I should um, um, uh, set aside the conclusions of analytic metaphysics, but rather that I should conceive of those conclusions in this way, which is, frankly, the way I already thought about it. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I figured you did, but I guess I don't as being, because being still, less human. <laughs> because, well, yeah, because you still you still hold out hope for there being something about origination and constitution that amounts to something a little more than merely uh, epistemic access to... Well, or, even, or even the necessity of identity is... No, but that one is already uh, spoken for in the example Jackson gave. Well, no, well I guess I, I don't have the same uh, interpretation he does of it. I see. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the idea that it's just necessity simpliciter. Well, so why would I do be, think that there's a difference can you between qualify this H2O difference? and H2O. Yeah, of course you can. No, no. Can, can you give me a sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So H2O is H2O is... Um, I think that it's both a metaphysical necessity and a logical necessity. Again, I, I think you're just making an epistemic point because... I guess my problem, no, my I, problem okay. with the use of metaphysics here, yeah. like I, I happily use the word because I, I got tired of all the dismissiveness of the early 20th century. Sure. Um, but but there is something I don't like about it, which is... Oh, I, I can tell you what the difference is mm, between the two. Logical and metaphysical? Yeah. No, I don't... I, I'm, what I want to say is, I would rather say objectual or objective. Like, I'd rather say it is of the object as opposed to of the words, you know? So to say that uh, Hesperus is identical to Phosphorus is about... You might say it's like de-re identity as opposed to de-dicto identity. I would prefer to talk about, that, talk about it that way. De, oh, de-re necessity and de-dicto no, necessity? No, de-re identity and de-re and de-dicto identity. Those aren't conventional locutions, right? But, but I would prefer to talk about it that way rather than making reference to metaphysics. Because I, I think one thing, one lesson worth learning was that metaphysics is... Um, um, if it is to be done at all, it's got to be descriptive and human. Well, I guess I'm still committed to that. I'm not committed, but I, I still inclined in that way. Uh, I guess I think the Deray thing is... Um, 
to, to make the distinction between the de re and de dicto like that seems to me it doesn't necessarily have to be non-human but it does seem to already be making a distinction that Jackson doesn't want to admit not perhaps between not. kinds of necessity oh no I don't think so but but that sounds very technical I and mean, we could go into it at some point yeah um, let's anything else uh I feel like we should wrap up at some point. We said we wanted to do between an hour and two hours. And right now we're at, let me think, 132. Oh, we're at an hour and a half. Perfect. Wow, that's not bad. Great. Okay, so, yeah. Until next time. What? Until next time. What do you mean? We're done? Oh, I thought so. No, 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 no. No? Okay. I'm recording. (laughs) Is there anything uh, else that you wanted to uh, say about Harmon or Jackson? Ah, so let's 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 recap the things that were still between us. Like when is intuitions exactly how they? Play yeah, a role? right. How they play a role. The different and, kinds of identities and necessities, and what else? There's plenty. There's too much. Supervenience. No, the super. But uh, we don't uh, disagree about that. We're just we just think it's interesting to look uh, well, ahead toward that. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems very much so bound up with these issues of identity. Uh-huh, um, sure. And then I guess and analyticity and a priori basically and yeah two, and two-dimensionalism right right i think that's that's an avenue for a lot of exciting oh yeah developments not so much something we disagree on just yet um well, we don't know enough yet <laughs> yeah we don't um, <laughs> um but it's exciting yeah <laughs> another little thing i found that was kind of cool on page um 28 okay uh, no don't go there it's when he's talking about the duplicates he cites john hick 1964 Heck, yeah, you know, okay. And I just saw the first John Hick. I actually already rented the second one. Uh, you know, with um, uh, what's his name? Keanu Reeves. What? Yeah, oh. Keanu Reeves. Oh, it's John Wick. Oh, John Wick. John yes. Hick. John Wick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, are you sure they're not identical? I'm sure. Maybe it's contingently identical. Maybe. <laughs> oh well, there's a whole disagreement. That contingently identical. <laughs> what's that? Anyway, the first one was good. Is the second one good? Actually, the second one is even better. Oh, awesome. In I fact, get, it's... I think I'd like to go watch that right now. In, in, we, should wrap up. we should totally watch it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. By the time of the time release yourself, you will act on the impulse of the
I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me.